I am so, so glad to be here today as I look out and see so many that I've walked with over the years and that are dear to me. So I, I carry Emmanuel Anglican near in my heart. So I'm so glad to be here. Pray with me if you would. Holy Father, we come to you in the strong, sure name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, we ask you uh, in the <laughs> ongoing, continuing miracle of hearing word um, in your holy church, that you would teach us to hear the voice of the Good Shepherd. We pray, Spirit, that you would open us wide up today. Open us uh, so that we can, in fact, love the Lord our God with all our hearts, with all our minds, with all our strength and soul, uh, with all our imagination, with all our intuition, that you would teach us what is beautiful so we can embrace it and pursue it, that you would give us uh, real clarity on what isn't uh, so that we can flee from it. We ask you to make us wise. We ask you to make us uh, joyful, faithful people today in the preaching of your word and the, the breaking of bread uh, at your holy table. And so would you do that in your kindness and your generosity? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. The long, lonely season of social distancing has caused all of us to go without, in large part, many things that we cherish, and rightly so. And right at the top of that list is the hug. Think about it. What does a warm, hearty, bracing hug communicate? That you're seen and known and loved. That you're in the right place, just where you belong. That you're received and delighted in. That you're welcome. That here is where you belong. That here you are offered the kind of comfort, not that makes you sleepy and groggy, but that invigorates you. Makes you clear-minded, all of us. Clear-hearted, full-hearted, settled and secure. The hug, a hug like that, is encouraging in the proper sense of the term. It puts courage right in our very bones. That's why Martin Luther could describe the gospel, the miracle of our redemption in terms of a hug. Luther says that Jesus Christ comes to us clothed in his gospel, the fount of all the Father's blessings made flesh. And he throws open his arms and he says to us, I am yours. Amen. And that's not all. In the beauty of Jesus' self-offering, the Spirit enables us to run, to flee to Jesus, into his arms, to bury our bosom, ourselves right in his bosom and declare in return, and I am yours. And it's right there in this life-giving, life-transforming embrace by the Son, our embrace of the Son, that we're brought to where he has been from before the foundations of the world. We're drawn into the very heart of the Father as his beloved children, as those he delights in, his sons, his daughters. Father Aaron and the rest of the leadership at Emmanuel were really wise to do a study on 1 John coming out of COVID, as we are. And that's because 1 John is like a big, happy, hearty, apostolic hug. That's what it is. Look with me at 1 John that Brian read. Well, actually, we'll look at a different text right now, but in 1 John. Look with me at 1 John as he begins in chapter 1, the first four verses of that chapter. 
It reads like this. That which was from the beginning, that which we have heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. Koinonia, right? Intimacy. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our, our, right? And collectively, our, says the Apostle, your, our joy may be complete brought to perfection. The apostle tells us that the word who was forever with God and forever is God has been revealed. He was seen and heard and touched by John in the early apostolic community that was with him right from the start. John's proclaiming the eternal life and light given to us by the Father, who is Jesus Christ himself in the flesh, crucified, risen, ascended. And with what aim? To what end? So that in fellowship with apostles, we too can truly abide in Jesus, right where we belong. So we can be confident and secure that his father is also our father. So that the joy Jesus shared with the apostles in upper room discourse can be in us as well, so that the joy of the church can be complete. You see the connection? Can you feel that hug? To hear and heed this apostolic testimony, John says, is to hear and heed the voice of the good shepherd, nothing less or other than that, and of his father. To enter the embrace of this apostolic fellowship is to enter the arms of our risen and present Lord in the bond of the Spirit. This is the embrace that gives us strength and stability amidst all the temptations, all the tumult, all the challenges of the world. This is the strong, yet gentle, grasp that tells us whose we are, and therefore who we are, and in that order, so that we can know and be known as true children of the one true God. Our focus today, this sermon, is on 1 John 2, 15, 27. It's what we heard Brian read just a moment ago. And I've titled our talk on loving the world and not. So let's take a running start toward that text just for a few minutes to get a good sense of its context. You'll recall from the ground you've covered, no doubt, over the past few weeks, that John says he received this message from Jesus Christ himself, and that now he in turn proclaims this message to us. What is it? God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. The triune God of the gospel is altogether good, altogether true, altogether beautiful, altogether holy, and that the whole fullness of God dwells bodily in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the fullness of God to us in our midst and in the power of the Spirit in us. So for us to have fellowship with the light, in John's language, means for us to walk 
and the light. We're called to live and move and have our being in the Christ who is light and life eternal. In the language of both Jesus, think John's gospel, and John, to walk in the light is to abide in Jesus Christ, to be joined to him like a branch is engrafted into a vine. And John wants us to know here in his first epistle that there's nothing at all iffy about this. There's nothing esoteric about it. There's nothing abstract or shapeless about it. To enjoy the fellowship of intimate union and communion with Jesus Christ is to enter a divine embrace, to receive a holy hug. And this holy hug makes us new and leaves us forever changed. John wants us to know that in our bones. So John gives us three assurances that this concrete reality of being truly in Christ and Christ being truly in us, he wants to strengthen us amidst the tumult of the world, right? He's got ringing in his ears, right? In this world, you will have tribulation. Be of good cheer. I've overcome the world, right? That's what John wants us to grasp. Some biblical commentators refer to these three assurances as the mark of obedience, We'll talk about that for just a minute. I know you did a little while ago, but I'm going to get a running start. At the mark of obedience, the mark of love, and the mark of faith, right? Leaning into, putting ourselves in the bosom of Jesus Christ. This is all fine. It's good as far as it goes. But I think it's even better for us if we'll think like this. These are assurances of how true knowledge of God in the gospel grants us true knowledge of ourselves. John wants us to have true knowledge of ourselves so that we can live in the world and love our neighbor. True knowledge of the church. True knowledge of self includes true knowledge of the church, right? If Jesus Christ is the God who is near and not far off, then learning to discern him is an exercise in self-discernment and discerning of the other. John wants us to know that. And true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So John spends the last part of chapter 1 and the first part of chapter 2 on God, gospel-shaped knowledge of our Christian selves. Who are, who are we? Who are we? That's not something that we discern in a self-referential way. It's something that's actually proclaimed to us, says John. And his point's this. All who truly love and trust the Lord Jesus Christ will endeavor to obey him as Lord. Right? Again, you, if you're familiar with John's gospel, you'll, you'll, you'll hear the echoes of it. Even as I... Obey my Father and abide in his love. Obey me. Abide in my love. All who are born of the Spirit, all who are abiding in Jesus Christ will endeavor to obey him as Lord, even if imperfectly. Right? And that's the place John wants us to sit in. To abide in Christ is to reject any lackadaisical license to live an ongoing fellowship, we might say, friendship with sin. Yet at the same time, to acknowledge that sin remains, sadly, regrettably, a part of our present Christian existence. To walk in the light, says John, is to know both of those things at once and to live in that tension. The good work begun in us is not yet finished. Have you noticed? <sighs> so in the now and not yet of this life, east of Eden, right? John says that we are at one and the same time saved and Sinful. At one and the same time, safe in Jesus Christ, yet quite capable of being pretty surly creatures. All right? 
The gospel graciously takes away from us all ground for that self-inflicted cruelty that we're so good at of pride on the one hand or despair on the other, right? Of um, the cruelty of perfectionism on one hand, the cruelty of apathy on the other. John wants us to abide in Jesus Christ by inhabiting that intention. And do you know what that kind of uh, what that what that kind of peop- that kind of knowledge allows us to be? The kind of people that it allows us to be honest, earthy, resilient, humble, merciful, patient, kind. Right? So the fruits of the Spirit, which are the fruits of Jesus Christ in us. Being freely justified in Jesus Christ means that we don't need to be justified by anyone else, even ourselves. Even ourselves. We can be very cruel to ourselves in this way, can't we? To walk in the light is to learn to move past that. There's no need for us to hide or lie or deflect. There's no need for those empty attempts at self-justification that we see so often uh, in the forms of moral grandstanding, public purity tests, right? To be freely justified in Jesus Christ means that we don't have to be preoccupied with those things. We can be joyfully free of them. There's need only to confess our sins against God and our neighbor, and we'll do that in just a bit, right? And to do it confident in the promise, as John says, that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Knowledge of the gospel gives us self-knowledge, says John. He goes on to tell us that true knowledge of God and the gospel gives us true knowledge of the church. This is a form of self-knowledge. He assures us that we can walk in light only by learning to love, and it is a learned skill, our brothers and sisters in Jesus, never by hating them. To walk in the light is to walk in love. Why? Is it because we're easy to love? Is it because we're altogether lovely? Goodness gracious, no. It's not why. It's because Jesus Christ loved us all the way to Gethsemane and Golgotha. Right? That's the way that God loves us. Right? Uh, God is love, and the love that God is has a very specific content and form to it and purpose to it. It's because God refuses, Jesus Christ refuses to be who he is apart from us. He counts our bodies as living members of his body so that he nourishes and cherishes the body of the church as his own flesh. And if you find this just a little bit arresting, a little bit shocking, discombobulating, you're on the right track. (laughs) You should. It's stunning. Now, many moderns say, that they like Jesus, but not the church. Jesus didn't leave that option open to us, and he didn't intend to, not at all. Because Jesus is in one flesh union with his people as head to body, right? Head to body. Being a post-church Christian, as some would say, is no less contradictory than being a post-Christ Christian. And in fact, they're one and the same thing. Walking in the light means learning to love our brothers and sisters in Jesus as an offering of love to Jesus himself. It's to discern Jesus in the other, right? Another way we might say that, it's for Jesus Christ to be 
truly our mediator. He mediates our relationship with one another. He even mediates our relationship to ourselves, right? All the ways in which we can have ruptured and disruptured relationships with ourselves. Jesus Christ is the mediator there. Our self is opened up to his self so we can get true knowledge of the self. So for all of us who are in Christ, as John says, this is a basic act of learning to rightly love ourselves, to learn how to rightly uh, discern Jesus Christ and our brothers and sisters. Now, before John begins this third point, he stops right in the middle of chapter 2 to give us a caution. And this isn't a passing suggestion, right? It's apostolic command. It's gospel command. And there's an urgency to it. It's John giving us an application to what it looks like for Christians to walk in the light in loving obedience to the light. And he says this. We heard Brian read it just a minute ago, but let me, uh, let me punctuate it. Do not, says John, imperative, command, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. It's not that original love that originates in the one who is love. It's this way. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. What are we to make of this? Didn't the world come to be in the first place as an outward explosion of the joy-filled love of the Father for the Son? Isn't, doesn't isn't the, doesn't all, all things exist outside of God's life? All that is except God exists because God is love, right? Doesn't the Father so love the world that he gave his only begotten Son? You see the way the Father loves. The Father loves in this way. And doesn't the son so share the father's love for the world that he gave himself even to death on a cross? To all these things, we want to say yes, yes, and yes. The heavens really do ring with the love of God. They really do. If we have gospel eyes to see it. And in this sense, it's right and good for us to love the world that exists by Christ and for Christ. There's nothing in John that's contradicting that or attenuating that at all. So Dostoevsky, he writes this about one of his characters in the Brothers Karamazov. I hope we can all relate to it. Ilyasha stood, gazed, and suddenly threw himself down on the earth. He longed so irresistibly to kiss it, to kiss it all. But he kissed it weepingly, sobbing and watering it with his tears, and vowed passionately to love it, and to love it forever and ever. We can all resonate with that. It's an implicate of the love of God for his creation. But when scripture speaks of the world, it often doesn't mean creation or planet earth in general, not in the ways that we've just been talking. And 1 John chapter 2 is a case in point. Here the world means the domain of sin and death and of the devil, the sphere marked by self-lordship, God-defiance, the kind of love that isn't self-giving, but is vacuous, right? It's that. To say it another way, 
We could say that here, the way John is talking, the world means cosmic rebellion against our Lord Jesus. And that rebellion is embedded in the cultural, ideological, social structures of a fallen earthly existence. John's warning us against this. John calls these the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life. And together they constitute what scripture will call elsewhere the spirit of the age. Right? The spirit of the age. John, John might say to us, resist the spirit of the age. It's what it means to abide in the fellowship of the Son, in his fellowship with the Father. Like the forbidden fruit of Eden, these things often seem, can seem, attractive to us. She saw it was good. She desired it. It would make one wise, and she took, wasn't given, took, ate. They often seem worthy of pursuit and possession, and we encounter them so easily, so readily in the stuff of daily life as you think through things of national interest, public opinion, common notions about morality, humanity, decency, and the like, the spirit of this age or of any other age, right? Not, it's not um, uh, unique to us in any way, any more than it is unique to John's age, but the spirit of this in any age is marked by these things and different manifestations of them. They promise us, and they're always the same in this way, they promise us unity, direction, and meaning in life. But the unity, direction, and meaning that they promise us is not from above in the language of John, but from below, right? Not in Christ by the spirit, but quite apart from Christ by the spirit of the age. John wants us to know that we can only find unity, direction, meaning. We can only find it as we seek to abide moment by moment, right? That's what abiding means, moment by moment, moment by moment. It's discipleship. Right? As we seek to abide moment by moment in the light, and as the light himself, Jesus Christ, the light of the world, exposes and lays bare for us the darkness of the world's alien gospels. Lots of gospels in the world, right? There's lots of spirits that blow over the face of the landscape that aren't Holy Spirit. Competing kingdoms, conflicting claims to lordship. Our Lord loves and blesses and serves us this way as he holds us in the light and as that light exposes, right? As Jesus says to Nicodemus, the light has come into the world. What has it done? It's the way the Lord protects us. It's the way the Lord loves the world. So let's be really clear here. It's precisely this world, the world we're talking about right here, in rebellion and revolt against God that he so dearly loves, that he so fiercely loves, for God so loved this world. And in just a little while, Deacon Susan will charge us to go forth into this world, the world we're talking about here, in peace, rejoicing in the power of the Spirit. So this is what we need to really grasp in order to do that faithfully. This is what John's telling us. Just as the Father sent Jesus into the world, Jesus sends us into the world, same world to manifest the same self-giving love, self-giving love. This is the way God loves the world, that marks children of the Father. As it is for our Lord, so it is for us, who live and abide in our Lord and walk in him in the language of John. We have the joy of sharing Christ's mission in the world because we, like him, are not of the world. It's not at all the case that we're superior to the world or that our Lord wishes to insulate or isolate us from the world. 
It's that our Lord saves us out of the world so that he can situate us in the world as his own. Basic to what it means to love God and neighbor. In Jesus Christ, we've been freed from the empty values and agendas of the world so that we are truly free to be his disciples. Truly free to walk in the light. Truly free to love God and neighbor. It's the gospel that does that. Back to Luther. Luther would say just that, right? Unless we are freely loved by God, we won't, we won't freely love God in return. We can't. We'll be on some kind of meritocratous um, treadmill. And unless we're freely loved by God, we won't be able to freely love our neighbor. We'll constantly be assessing ourselves relative to our neighbor, buoy ourselves up or to uh, feel badly that our neighbor puts us to shame. We're set free from that. What John's telling us is that we must love the world in the same way and with the same redemptive end as God loves the world. To be sure, this means not loving many of the things that the world tends to love. Not all the things, but many of the things. And it means not loving the world according to its own self-styled means and ends. The way God loves the world isn't the way the world loves itself. Right? But maybe most of all, most of all, it means resisting an even greater temptation that I'll bet you, we, you feel, I feel it all the time. And it's this, it's to perform that grand counter-miracle of turning the wine of God's holy love into the water of mere indulgent, right? The kind of thing that passes for love, that's just, it's just indulgent. Sentimentality. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son, right? Calls him to action and, and self-giving action, great cost to himself. Or omni-affirmation. Indulgence, sentimentality, omni-affirmation. These things often masquerade as love and modernity. I bet you feel that temptation all the time. But if God is the true substance, the true measure of love, as John insists that he is, for God is love, then all that is truly loving and lovely must conform to God, not to the world. So John's telling us. We need to know this to love God and neighbor in the world. The love of God is pure, beautiful, strong, stronger than death, right? Love of God. God comes after us in his holy love. He loves us enough to do that. And in, in his infinite wisdom, he knows how to do that wonderful thing of putting us to death and raising us to life and love. But he never harms us. The love of God will never harm us. Magnificent. Jesus Christ is not of the world. I'm sorry, let me say this. Yeah, we're good. <laughs> Jesus Christ is not of the world because he's from the Father, right? That's John's point. The love of the Father isn't in them. It's not from above, but from below. Jesus Christ is from the Father, come to bring life to a world that seeks life in itself, right? Come to pop that bubble, that echo chamber. And we too are not of the world, but from the Father in Jesus Christ. We've been raised with the risen one. That's what John needs us to know. We've been raised with the risen one, so we are actually an eschatological people. Um, we're a new humanity rising right up out of this old and weary world that John says is even now passing away. Don't fall in love 
with the things of the world because even now they're passing away. But to abide, right? Abide um, endures forever. We're neither misplaced persons nor tourists. We're resident aliens. For us, then, the world cannot be ultimate or trivial. That's the paradox. That's the, the posture that John calls us to. Neither ultimate nor trivial. It's a sphere where we've been divinely placed for missional investment. Holy action. What's our call? To resist the world, but not to retreat from it. Abide, right? The only alternative to resisting or retreating from the world, abide. Abide. To be concerned for the world, but not to be conformed to it. Abide. To live peaceably with all people in so far as is possible. But not to settle for the peace that the world offers, right? The world has a peace to offer us. It's not the peace of Jesus. My peace I give to you. My peace. Not the way the world's going to offer it. Not the way the world can deliver. Not to settle for any peace that the world offers at the price of infidelity to our Lord. John wants us to know that this world is not benign. He wants us to know that. Our nail-pierced Savior bears the wounds to prove it. The world is not benign. Yet even as we take up and put on the armor of God, as Paul would tell us to do, we don't ultimately contend with people. And that's really important, the loving God and neighbor. We don't ultimately contend with people. That's part of the spirit of this age, that polarizing spirit of this age, to abide in Jesus Christ, not to do that. We contend with the forces of evil in a fallen world. Right? People are not our enemies. To serve God and love neighbor is to walk in the light who shines amid darkness so that this mission of holy love can be for the hope and salvation of this world, right? John's telling us to hate the world in a very specific way and very specific aspects of the world so that we can love the world the way our Lord loves the world and so that we can be free from the powers of the world. I'm a professor. I'm tempted to say, any questions? It's not what I'm doing here, right? Now, if we look at verse 18, as Brian read, of chapter 2, we see why John cautions us about friendship with the world's darkness. He says, many antichrists, and it's plural. The first usage is antichrist, the next are plural, right? The ones that John are talk- the one that John's talking about, the ones, are in anticipation of something else. Many antichrists, plural, have appeared, indicating that it's the last hour, John says. There's urgency, right? Do not love the world. Again, we want to be really clear here. John isn't making a chronological conjecture right here. He's stating a theological reality and a theological certainty. He's not saying that the appearing of Antichrist tells us exactly when Jesus will come back in power and glory. It's nothing of that here. He's saying that the appearing of Antichrist serve as certain signs and pledges that the end is coming. John actually wants us to take heart here, right? It's not... It's not the world, they, everything's falling apart, right? The church is in peril. The church isn't in peril. The church is immortal, risen with Jesus Christ from the dead. The world's in peril, not the church. This is actually supposed to give us heart. <clears throat> Just as surely as day follows night, John might say, the light of the world will rout and scatter this present darkness once and for all. Take heart. But be on your guard, right? Watch. 
see. So what are the antichrists that John's talking about here in this context? Are they fake Christs, self-proclaimed you know, pseudo-messiahs? They're not. Are they monsters with forked tongues and cloven hooves? No. In fact, John describes them in terms that are more chilling than that. This is the way John describes them. He says, they're people who went out from the fellowship of the apostles. That's far more chilling. They're people who went out from the fellowship of Jesus and thus from his father and the church. In John's day, like ours, Antichrists are people who have gotten over or grown beyond Jesus. They've seen through him, grown weary of him, or just become too intellectually or culturally sophisticated for him. Right? In John's day, what John's primarily dealing with are Gnostics. Um, we, have, we have another manifestation of us in this day, right? This is why this last hour is undoing. Know this, these are anticipations of that coming. Antichrists have come to believe that Jesus' light is too bright, we might say. His lordship's too restrictive. Does that resonate? His cross, too cumbersome. His teaching, just too antiquated. His sheep, just too stinky. Antichrists have become embarrassed and offended by Jesus. In the temptations of life, they've come to find that they cannot declare with Jesus that we live not by bread alone, but by every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. What does it mean to abide in him? To do just that, right? In his wilderness, in his Gethsemane, he does that. He calls us to do just the same. The mark of Antichrist is the refusal to do that. As you saw as Brian read the text, the denial in this way. And in the confusions of life, which we all know, they cannot confess with Peter that apart from Jesus, anywhere else is really nowhere at all. Are you going to leave too, Peter? Right? With those who are offended by Jesus? Where would I go? Where on earth would I go? To be away from you, wherever it is, is nowhere at all. It's giving their ears and eyes, their minds and hearts to the things of the world in the language of John into the darkness they go. And John says that there they become like what they love. We all do. Making plain that they're not of us. Whoa, this is chilling, right? John says, be careful. Don't love the world. Don't do that. Now it's right here. It's right here that John gives us this third concrete assurance that we have true knowledge of God and the gospel. We are abiding in Jesus Christ and in the apostolic fellowship that is his body, the church, right where we ought to be. And true abiding for John reveals true belonging. To abide in the world reveals a belonging to the world. To abide in Jesus Christ, conversely, reveals a belonging to Jesus Christ. John says, there it is. There it is. John's not saying that our salvation is a reward for abiding. Not at all. He's saying that our abiding amidst all the contrary pressures of life in a fallen world is the precious hallmark of all who belong to Jesus. 
And John says, take heart, take heart. John wants us to be without any illusion or any deception about what the world is and who we are. If we're not clear about how and why we, as the people of God who abide in Jesus Christ, the church, differ from the world, then we can't be the blessing to the world that we should be. Nor can we have the fullness of joy that we ought in our Lord Jesus, that robustness. We, abiding in Jesus Christ, says John, have the anointing of the Holy One, who is the spirit of truth, the power and presence of Jesus in us, the anointing of the breaking in of the age to come, right? The first fruits of the spirit. We're eschatological people. We have in our ears the apostolic witness of scripture. And in a moment, we'll have on our lips the confession of sin, right? That mark of, of obedience, endeavoring to love the Lord and confessing, right? Not abiding, in the darkness, but confessing, right, our sin. And the words of the Nicene Creed on our lips, the faith once for all delivered to the saints, the fellowship that John's talking about that he testifies to us. And if that weren't enough, in just a few moments we'll have in our hands and on our tongues and in our stomachs the body and blood of Jesus, the mystery of the gospel, the mystery of Christ in us, our assurance of glory. There's nothing iffy about that, right? There's nothing speculative about that. The body and the blood. So dear ones, hear the promise of the gospel and feel the holy hug of our good shepherd right here. Listen, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them from the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.